Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. And we've got some more great guests lined up for you. Coming up on today's show, your home may have become your office with thanks to the pandemic, but could empty office space be about to become a new home? Shane Dempsey of Savills joins us to discuss the possibilities that is being explored by the government. And we're going to look at who, in fact, is Keir Starmer. The author of a book, The Starmer Project, joins me to shed some light on the man who is tipped to become the next UK Prime Minister. Last week, we talked about the difficulty in Ireland in building mega projects. But this week, Engineering Industries Ireland talks to us about what their industry would like to see coming up in budget 2024. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter or X at StockNT. Now, recently, Minister Simon Coveney said that the timing is right to convert unused office blocks into apartments as companies downsize and amid the rise in remote working. But what goes into making these kinds of refurbishments and are they cost and energy efficient and effective? I'm joined now by Shane Duffy, who's Director of Office Agency with Savills. Shane, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mandy. Now, Shane, obviously we see the signs up all around the city, uh, offices to let, and we've heard in the news this week that companies like WeWork uh, under pressure in terms of their value stocks, uh, companies like Zoom urging people to go back into the offices. So what's the office landscape like now in terms of sales? Is, are, we, are, we, are we still selling offices? Is there anybody buying? Are you seeing a kind of evacuation of the city centre? Yeah, it's, it's not without its challenges. Um, I think it's fair to assume there's a lot of focus on, on the vacancy rate. So the vacancy rate is generally telling us, the metrics are telling us that about 15% of office stock around the city is, is currently vacant. Um, How many? 15? 15%. 15%. So that's about, okay. I suppose, one in six. Um, so it is challenging. Um, I think it's fair to say there's a, a renewed focus. There is a flight to quality. So there's a renewed focus on, I suppose, the better stock um, the new office space that's materialised around the core CBD, so around St. Stephen's Green and that general hinterland. So there's still a relatively healthy demand in those areas. Um, more periphery locations have suffered in terms of the, the general uh, occupier demand and certainly the, the suburbs as a whole. But it's stable, uh, rents are stable, and the demand is is starting to so, show some green shoots across the board. Um, but it would be remiss of us to say that it's a very healthy environment uh, mm. outside of the city centre. Okay, that's very interesting, that flight to quality. I suppose that that's probably a legacy of COVID and, you know, people working hard to try and entice and coax people back into offices that's proven difficult in itself for companies generally speaking yes but it's it's probably more down to the quality of the the buildings themselves so, so i suppose the older stock buildings even buildings that were built four or five years ago um are already maybe showing their age in some respect so i suppose there's a lot of focus on on the newer space because there's a healthy quantum available uh, and it definitely fits the purposes and for these occupiers to try and attract the right talent to mm. retain uh, the occupiers that they have. And as you say, to get people back into the office, they need to have the best product. You know, when you're doing your ESG evaluation for the year, is the office kind of, the physical office space part of that evaluation? Yeah, I think it's it's probably the ultimate focus, by and large. Um, there's, there's a real focus on, on the quality of the space itself, not just necessarily on on the, the, the energy emissions, but just in terms of how the building is used. Um, the space itself, the floor plate itself, how you can generally utilise the space, so the efficiency of it, and generally value for money. 
Um, maybe what we would have seen before COVID was that there would have been a compromise for many occupiers because there weren't necessarily a requirement or there wasn't as much focus on getting their staff back into the office. Mm. Whereas now they want to make sure that it's bulletproof, that they tick every box, that it's accessible, that the amenities are are, are really front-loaded in, in terms of the immediate vicinity. Uh, so generally speaking, there's a, there's a much bigger quality. They're not really, they're not really as price sensitive mm. um, maybe as they were before. Um, so there's a real strong focus on that. That's absolutely fascinating uh, to look at how important the office now is in terms of attracting people in, mm. attracting talent. And yeah, look, let's get into why we brought you here in the first place, uh, Shane. Now, Minister Simon Coveney said that he's supported repurposing office blocks for residential use. This is on foot of poor Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, trying absolutely everything that he can to ask the Minister, look, can you kind of look at these uh, unused offices? But how realistic uh, is it to just take an office block and repurpose it? Is it a huge construction work? Mm. Is it a huge financial cost? Like, is this possible in your view? Uh, it, it's worth looking at um, but it's certainly not the silver bullet solution that we're looking for in terms of, of trying to, to provide the necessary residential accommodation across the board. If you take that 15% vacancy, if we just look at that from a theoretical perspective, if all of that space was converted, that's about 6 million square feet in the office market, so if all of that space was converted into residential use it would probably accommodate about 4,500 units. Um, so it's only the tip of the iceberg as far as the residential issues are concerned. So it alleviates part of a problem. It can be part of a solution, um, but it's certainly not going to alleviate all of the concerns. There's a lot of issues. So in, in theory, it sounds plausible. Um, in practice, it presents a lot of challenges. Uh, first of all, from a planning perspective, clearly there's a long lead-in time to convert uh, from commercial use to residential use. Uh, it's quite a thorny issue. Um, so even if you had a full vacant office building tomorrow morning, that presents a challenge in itself because mm. not every office building is fully vacant. So if you've got a multi-tenanted building, you require all of those lease events to terminate simultaneously to get vacant possession. Then going through a planning process could take up to 15 or 18 months uh, to bear fruit. Then you physically start your works on site and it's a costly and time-consuming process. So it could be three to four years before you actually have physical product available for residential use. Then you look at the structures themselves. So office buildings by their very nature are designed for office use. Um, the, generally that's a central core and the office space uh, filters around that. Um, to convert it to residential use can be can be quite costly. Um, there's a structural issue, there's a natural light issue. A lot of the services in an office building are centralised, so they come through the central core to distribute the, that maybe across 10 or 15 individual units for residential purposes is challenging. You need a certain floor to ceiling height and each individual unit then obviously needs access to natural light, which is not always the case in some of the older office buildings. Then when you look at the facade of these older office buildings, if it's an air-conditioned building, which the majority of them will be, it's a sealed building. Um, so that means that the windows don't open. So if you're looking at converting it into residential use, you have to completely reskin the facade and put in a new window system. And in many instances, maybe there's insufficient natural light, so you have to expand it. So when you add all of that up, it's quite costly, it's time consuming, and, and there's a lot of pressure on developers to make it to make it stack up. Wow, yeah, that's certainly a litany of problems, really. So mm. let's just kind of go through them. But to start off with, look, 4,500 if it was that 15% uh, and you broke it down to become available. Yes, it's not a panacea by any manner of means, but if the government is facing 13,000 on a homelessness list and also 
their building targets aren't next nine or near where they need them to be. I guess an extra 4,500 in their stock for the end of 2023, 2024 going into an election would be very helpful if they could manage it. But like all of the things that you mentioned there from the planning processes, from the building regulations, um, in theory at least, they are things that the government process owns. So there might be a way to change those existing planning process mm. to allow this to be possible. And maybe this is why they've set up an interdepartmental agency. But just let's look at it from an owner's point of view. Mm. Like, where do you think, like you, you mentioned earlier that the, the city centre is, is, is very popular, but out on the margins, mm a lot of this stock exists. Do you think that there are owners who are looking for it just might yes. look at this? I think that's where the opportunities lie. And first of all, from a, from a planning point of view, um, I'm sure there are ways that the government um, can interact with, with that process. Um, it has been done in other jurisdictions. It's been done successfully in the UK. Um, there also has to be some compromise in terms of the product. So to convert an office use uh, or an office building into residential use, um, there has to be some compromise in the product, not necessarily from a you know a disability access or a fire sale perspective, but just in terms of, for example, if you're doing a conversion, do you automatically require a balcony or terrace space, etc. So there has to be a conversation around that to see what compromises are readily achievable and what can't be sacrificed. As far as the opportunities and where we think there are some maybe low-hanging fruit, Certainly, the still is strong. Like the office market hasn't stalled. I think there's a lot of focus on it, as if you know it's a it's something of a, a different age. Um, there's still a lot of reasonable demand for office space, and for every occupier, okay, they might need as much space as they required three years ago, but there's still a demand. Where there is demand is around the city centre. Mm. So that market is almost you know out of sync for for uh, residential conversion. So looking at the periphery locations, suburban locations, I think that's where we'll see some opportunities arising. If you're looking at some of the business parks around the suburbs, it presents another challenge because a lot of those properties are owned not necessarily under a freehold, but under a long leasehold. Uh, and generally within those business parks, there's certainly certain measures that owners have to comply with to ensure that they, I suppose, maintain the general tone and the use within those business parks. Um, so there'll be a user clause within these long leasehold interests. So now all of a sudden it's not a planning issue, it's not a structural issue, but it's a contractual issue mm. if the user clause stipulates that it has to be used for commercial use. So I think the vacancy rate is higher in the suburbs by and large certain in certain locations. And I think if uh, this vehicle is designed to look at opportunities, I think en masse, if they, I suppose, associate their focus on designated areas in the suburbs, I think they'll find some opportunities. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Shane Duffy, who's Director of Office Agency with Savills, about conversion of office space into homes and apartments. Um, that's very, very interesting, Shane. I think um, it's it's it does sound like an easy solution, but when you talk through the difficulties here, I can see how even doing something like that might be mm. an extremely lengthy process unless there's a standalone piece of legislation brought in by the government which specifically addresses this particular issue. I can't see how this is viable in the short term. What would your assessment yeah, be? Yeah, and I think it's also, I think the cost element has to be considered as well from a, from a commercial developer's perspective. 
Um, and I think again what they've done in other jurisdictions is look to try and introduce some form of a subsidy or a tax relief Yeah let's talk about that viable. You said it had worked in the UK how has it worked? Um, I think in terms of fast tracking the availability so if you have a vacant office building and it's what they would refer to as an obsolete or a stranded asset a stranded asset basically means that it's it's not fit for purpose maybe f- for uh, use as a general office building so that's an opportunity in itself um, but you still have to go through quite a long uh, an, an exasperated planning process. So if there is a way to fast track that, to try and alleviate the concerns for, for for developers, if they see an opportunity, if the costs stack up, if there's a speed to market ability to get that physical product available within maybe six or 12 months as opposed to two, three years, um, then I think there are opportunities there too. And maybe if it's not about the developer taking a chance um, and that it's about a partnership between the state and the developer and they have a long-term access to Mm. even 4,500 that could be viable. What about university partnerships? Could this work for student accommodation? I would have thought so. Um, Again, if it's in the right location and it's accessible for the universities, yes, absolutely. But again, you're probably looking at locations outside of, I suppose, the key commercial hubs around the the city centre, around St. Stephen's Green and into the South Docks and those areas. So, you know, moving into areas maybe like Dublin 3, Dublin 7, Dublin 8, um, there has to be a, a high quantum of opportunities in those those locations for older stock buildings. Mm. But I guess if you're um, sending your son or daughter on a, on a bus from Athlone, travelling for two hours every mm-hmm. day, like, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that's not going to be part of your concern. Um just finally, if, if I can on this, Shane, the central banks seem to be intimating that there's a sort of downturn in the commercial real estate sector. What was your assessment of what they're saying there? Yeah, I think we've, it's certainly not what it is, challenges. Um, certainly as far as the investment market is concerned, it's, it's been a pretty tough year. As far as the occupier market is concerned, and specifically the office market, it's been relatively slow, but we've we've sort of seen that, those challenges, those challenges before. Um I think last year was a good year for the office market in a post-COVID world. It probably exceeded all expectations. And we always knew that this year presented a lot of challenges because there was a lot of new buildings that were already under construction during COVID. So they had to deliver. Those buildings, I suppose, being delivered and being practically complete have increased the vacancy rate. So it's given occupiers more choice. That's not to say that the demand is not there. Um, I'd say for occupiers, they're probably adapting a wait-and-see approach at Mm. the moment. So if they have an opportunity to sit tight and maybe wait for better opportunities to emerge, maybe there might be an impact in terms of the rental levels because the rental levels have actually uh, maintained their levels across the board over the last couple of of years. Um, So they haven't felt the pressure that maybe many... And what about building, Shane? Has has the building of office blocks stopped now? Pretty much, yes. I think it's fair to assume that it's very hard to make any new uh, construction activity commercially viable Mm. or certainly challenging. So unless you're talking to an occupier, a large-scale occupier about a commercial pre-let, it becomes challenging. But um, I suppose if everyone stops building, that's going to create its own issues in two or three years' time. Uh, So again, when we're talking to a lot of our developer clients at the moment, they're already looking maybe two or three years out from there. Okay, well, finally, just before I let you go, um, Simon Coveney and Minister Dara O'Brien setting up this interdepartmental group now to try and work on conversions from office space to homes. What advice, if any, would you give them? 
I think generally look at it from a location perspective. Um, so I think if they can hone in on certain locations where there might be high quantums of office space, but not necessarily uh, all occupied, um, certainly looking at the planning and, and certainly looking to see if there's any subsidies that can be provided. Well, Shane, that's sound advice. I hope they take it from you. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Shane Duffy, Director of Office Agency with Savills. Thank you so much for coming in to us today. Very welcome. You're listening to Taking Stock on Newstalk. Coming up, last week we talked about the difficulties here in Ireland in building mega projects. Well, Engineering Industries Ireland talks to us about what their industry would like to see coming up in Budget 2024. That's after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Engineering Industries Ireland has launched its Budget 2024 submission and it's calling on the government to do some very specific things to help the industry, not just to compete, but to grow. I'm joined now by Pauline O'Flanagan, who's Director of Engineering Industries Ireland. Pauline, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us here on Taking Stock. Thank you, Mandy. Now, just Pauline, remind us exactly who you represent um, uh, in this business landscape and what issues the industry is currently facing. Okay, so Engineering Industries Ireland is one of IBEC's newest trade associations representing uh, 11,000 engineering manufacturing and also engineering services companies in most parts of Ireland. Um, the sector, I suppose, spans automation automotive sector, precision engineering, a broad range of sectors, even agriculture, machinery, energy, environment, metal, fabrication. And we employ about 50,000 people. Um, we have annual exports of 8.8 billion. And approximately 65% of these enterprises are Indigenous Irish-owned companies. And we have lots of, I suppose, lots of issues. We're, we're a growing sector, we're a technology sector, but um, we face, I suppose, a lot of challenges with regard to trying to grow our sector, um, um, making sure that we can, I suppose, support that from the point of view of export trade, um, support innovation. We launched our strategy um, last uh, I think February 22, and we, we, I suppose we have four key pillars of focus that um, we need, uh, I suppose, to realise to grow our sector, and they are our innovation, sustainability, people and regulation. And these four areas pose challenge, I think, for the sector as well. Okay. So as a result, yeah, we're calling on uh, us within that, yeah. So hugely important um, in the landscape of development uh, in, in Ireland, which we've been talking about a lot. Also a lot of indigenous industries. And like, let's be honest, we, we don't have a great deal of indigenous industries. So it's important to pay uh, big attention to those ones who are here and employing lots of people. Um, now, the, the issues that you wanted to uh, address in this budget submission. The first of those that I saw was competitiveness. Yes, so maybe indeed. talk us through why and what uh, is challenging competitiveness in the in the engineering industries now. I suppose to, to start with what we're good at, I, uh, maybe um, uh, just from a positive note, I look at uh, Ireland is doing very well in terms of um, our Irish competitiveness and we score very high. Um, you know, I think it, it was in the world competitive ranking this year, we came out second, however. Um, and second, I think it uh, was as a result of our debt to national income is coming down in terms of talent and skills. I think we're the second, second highest uh 
trend from a working age population with third level education. And this, of course, is very important for, for the engineering sector. We also lead in Europe in STEM graduates. All right? And um, I think this the STEM graduates are measured uh, per thousand a population of um, graduates between the age of 20 and 29. So um, that's all very positive. We also actually fare very highly on business and government efficiency um, when you look at the indicators and, um, and also from a quality of life. But notwithstanding all of these successes, we perform very poorly um, with regard to three areas, I think, of the main focus, energy, infrastructure, and our spending in R&D. And um, and we're calling on the government to focus on these areas. Um, If we're to maintain and improve our competitiveness position in the years ahead, I think housing is one of the, I suppose, the infrastructure constraints um, that really is undermining our competitiveness performance at at present. And we're hearing a lot about this from our members with regard trying to find um, housing for uh, future employees. And um, and as they bring, they cannot bring, I suppose, much needed skills in from abroad um, if there isn't housing. So many of our businesses have had to go and source um, housing for for buying houses, buying up apartment blocks to support where they could, I suppose, to support um, the future growth of their business. And so in terms of our competitiveness, that that's actually um, really um, affecting business decisions and people's, you know, choosing to locate here now. And we've heard IBEX say that time and time again in various different ways. Can I just focus on another element of the competitiveness issue that you've raised, which is this um, idea that we might have uh, an export credit agency. Can you just really talk us through what that is and whether um, other member states have this functioning at the moment, why we don't have one even? Okay, so an export credit agency, I suppose it's a private or a state-backed um, uh, body that generally acts as an intermediary between government and the exporters to issue guarantee for financing. And uh, this can be in various ways, official financing support, direct credit to foreign buyers or refinancing um, and support such as insurance cover or even guaranteeing cover for credit provided by the private institutions. Um, we already have uh, strategic banking cooperation um, here in Ireland but uh, we're told by our members that this can be restrictive and it's also risk averse. Mm. So I think the call is then for Ireland to have a state-backed scheme and also an expert credit agency to support business. And we, we are an outlier in Europe, you mentioned um, where else. Um, it, obviously, and most European countries, our main competitors have these in place, France, uh, Germany, uh, Austria, Sweden, uh, Portugal, I could keep naming, mm. right, U- the UK even. So um, so all of these have uh, a scheme in place and, and and an agency to support that. So, um, we're, so we're very much in a minority when it comes to not having this. Absolutely. The fact that Brexit has occurred, does this make this issue um, even more pertinent now for us? It's absolutely, it's it's just as important. We need to be able, to, if, if we're serious and we, from a government perspective, export and encouraging the growth of our business to export is one of our key drivers. And we have our state agencies, Enterprise Ireland, um, for our small, medium enterprise exporting business, supporting that and the IDA. But we need, I think there is the opportunity now not to, um, I suppose, to grow our small indigenous sector, to help to not just rely, I think, on, you know, the few very important and well 
functioning multinational uh, exporting sectors for our tax intake. We need to broaden the base, our tax base, mm. and we need to. And to, to that end, I think we need to to drive exports and have you know create a sector in its own right where private sector banks and more than the one that we have there today work with the government and uh, with the state backed export scheme to absolutely um, ensure and drive exports. And these a lot of these agencies, if you look at them across across the world and even in the US, they have even they, they create databases of customers, create credit worthiness. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot yes, so more they have their own they, they have absolutely. their own evaluation and metrics, absolutely. which yeah, yeah. Would in itself would be a help. Um, you've also mentioned in your submission that idea that you want to have a, a more simplified code for research and development tax credits. What, why is it complicated at the moment or what do, would you like to see happen here? Well, um, many, uh, I suppose, we innovation is one of our key pillars, as I said, and um, and we need to continuously support and drive um, engineering business to innovate. And some fantastic, uh, innovative companies we have within within the engineering uh, sector, but we need to be actively driving this. And some of the reports back from businesses that the system, albeit it's working for a certain cohort, mm. it's not as easy or accessible for all. Many people are actually, um, I, I suppose, uh, hiring consultants to help them to navigate the scheme and um, you know it operates it gives you 25% on your R&D expenditure um, and both on capital and revenue um, in the form of a credit or in cash and um, and this is like it, it bases this on what they call the Frascati model and there is different interpretations on, on what that is and and you see great examples I think um, from from other countries like Spain um, who are using their um, tax, R&D tax credit schemes to, to focus tax credits, you know, for new and improved in production processes for the automotive industry, for example. So they're targeting that and we could target that towards towards renewable, towards different areas where we need to focus on to obviously to sustain business in the long term. Yeah, so say, I think much done, more to be done. Yeah, yeah as you yeah. say, we're very successful when it comes to research and yes. development students and those partnerships with universities are all always very important. So maybe a more holistic repro- ap- approach there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy. Johnston and I'm speaking to Pauline O'Flanagan who's Director of Engineering Industries Ireland. Pauline I just want to turn to the skills issues now and that issue of the labour market and the supply of uh, employees and talent and driving that supply for highly skilled graduates and you mentioned that the STEM graduates are, are at the top in Europe it's what attracts a lot of business to Ireland anyway from those multinationals. What would you like to see happening here beyond what is already being done? Okay, so so obviously from an engineering perspective, we have we have not a diverse uh, workforce. We also know we're um, at this minute we're um, at full employment. So where everyone that wants a job has a job, and we've record low unemployment figures at something like I think it's three point eight percent. So um, so I think from from that perspective, we need to target all and a more diverse workforce to make sure, and that's especially even for 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 our sector, improve workplace accessibility for all. Um, make sure there's more child supports in place to allow the, the people that are home caring that they can come to work. Yeah, who are we you talking to, about, Pauline? Yeah. Who's getting into the industry um, now and, and who would you like to try and attract but who's ob- not approaching yeah. it now? 
Yeah. So obviously more women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of work to do. It's not seen as, a, 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 I suppose, a, a role, a job of choice. And I think we need to go back, probably start at probably primary education to to probably start encouraging people to take on a, a more of an engineering or problem solving based career. Um, but like so. So I think there's a lot of work, as I said, to, to solve the, the diversity problem within engineering sector to make it more attractive, as I said. And I'm, we're hoping that the sustainability agenda will will support that because obviously companies have a huge focus now on sustainability and and we, we hope that that will appeal to a, probably a more diverse workforce um, and how might how yeah. might that attract people who wouldn't I ordinarily think, go in yeah i think that um so, so when they when they see how companies are coming up with technology solutions investing in biodiversity um coming up with i think it's more at the focus toward the amount of innovation that's going on and not just mechanical you know what I mean? Um, operation type, you know, as, as we would traditionally have seen an engineering based firm to be. Mm. So there's there's fantastic innovations going on. Um, and I think we need to we've, we as Engineering Industries Ireland has, have a lot to do as well to to promote the sector as being, um, you know, a, a fantastic uh, place to work and a, a viable career and a, a good career. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you say, moving on from the mechanical into areas like technology yes. and all of those other areas. What about the national apprenticeship schemes? I think that everyone can't go to, to university and and be a whiz um, a, a, as an engineer. So uh, how do you want uh, the government to, to broaden that out? Oh, for, for, for absolutely the apprenticeships um, I was actively and have been actively involved in the apprenticeship program for a number of years since the, I think the apprenticeship review back in 2015 so we obviously we need different pathways to engineering as I mentioned an apprenticeship is one of the newer newer pathways to engineering and I think apprenticeships themselves we've a lot of work to do we've done a lot since 2015 on the, the review that has, has taken place um, we have you know the numbers are increasing towards our target the government target of 10,000 per year of registrations at 2025. And this is coming well near that, I think, with about 8,600. So uh, many of our engineering companies are using the engineering uh, manufacturing engineering apprenticeship program as a way of attracting a more diverse so they're targeting more females and a more diverse workforce which is supporting our agenda toward uh, obviously having a more diverse workforce in general um so but we've a lot of work to do the apprenticeship program is and hopefully will be a rewarding um, um you know a career provision and be seen as um the same as if you go straight to college from from third level but like our ask from the government is to to review the the existing sustainable funding, make it a sustainable funding model, because at the minute there is um, um, a quite a, a difference between a two tiered system, really between the craft and the new consortia led apprenticeship, um, and we need we need the focus now because we, there is the money there in the national training fund, and um, we need the government now to focus and come up with a sustainable funding model, but also I think one that's going to support more employers to take on, especially in the SME small medium enterprise mm. to take on apprentices. I think that will uh, definitely uh, progress the apprenticeship model as being a, you know, a a dual education model. Absolutely. And and, uh, let's see more people getting into that industry beyond what we would traditionally expect. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Pauline O'Flanagan, who's Director of Engineering Industries Ireland. Pauline, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, he seems destined to take over as the UK Prime Minister next year. But we actually know very little about Keir Starmer. So the author of a book called The Starmer Project is going to join me after the break.
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, unless there's a dramatic turnaround, it's safe to say that Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, is likely to be the next UK Prime Minister. Even though he's been leader of that party for the last three years, there's still a lot of who is he around him. Well, my next guest is one of the few writers who's written at length about him. So it's great to welcome Oliver Eagleton, who's assistant editor of New Left Review and author of The Starmer Project. Oliver, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks very much, Mandy. Good to be here. Now, I actually thought I didn't know a lot about him. Maybe it was just me. But when I looked into it, there's not a lot of people know a lot about him. So we might start off with the very basics. Uh, his early years, where did he come from and what were his parents like? Yes, absolutely. Well, he uh, grew up in a place called Oxted in South England, in Surrey, and his father ran a small toolmaking business. He was from a sort of lower middle class family. Um, he went to study law at the University of Leeds and uh, was kind of pushed into that profession by his parents, although he wanted to study politics. Um, and then after being called to the bar in the late 80s, he undertook a lot of kind of interesting pro bono work, giving legal advice to trade unionists, uh, environmental campaigners, and so on. Mm. Um, And he quite quickly became a very prominent kind of figure on the London legal scene, moving in these uh, kind of left-wing circles and had a brief association with a, a, a socialist magazine that he became the editor of. But then interestingly, he sort of took a turn after that towards a kind of much more institutional politics. And Ireland was quite central to that story in a way. He uh, got a job defending a, a British soldier who had been stationed in Northern Ireland, who had shot dead a young a Catholic teenager. And Starmer's defense helped to get this guy released from prison. Um, And then shortly thereafter, Starmer got a job as a human rights advisor to the Northern Irish Policing Board. This was in the early 2000s. Um, So there's an interesting way in which he goes in his early years as a lawyer from, you know, assisting people who are often kind of fighting the British state to uh, really sort of serving it himself. And that accelerates his career and eventually brings him to the position of director of public prosecutions, Britain's top lawyer and the most high profile person in the uh, in the legal profession. So he didn't come from a particularly affluent background, you wouldn't say, but he did go into law in a similar way to, I suppose, Tony Blair and others who have segued from the law into politics. Did he always have a political ambition or has he fallen into politics? Yes, I think he did always have a political ambition. People I spoke to who knew him in his early life said he really admired uh, Clement Attlee, always felt that, you know, uh, like the, you know, the post-war Labour Prime Minister, he wanted to achieve something similar in politics and saw that tradition of Labourism, the sort of what he would see as the sensible centre ground mm. as his natural political home. And in indeed, I mean, a lot of the legal work he did from the very beginning was political. And I mean, it, he sort of shifted across the ideological spectrum in doing so. But I think there's a, a sense that Starmer is more of a lawyer than a politician. But actually, when you look back at his record, the, the boundary between those two things is is blurred a lot of the time. 
two things that have affected his career greatly. One is Jeremy Corbyn and the second is Brexit. So when you look at, say, let's take Jeremy Corbyn firstly, Starmer was able to behave very like a politician in dealing with him. He did what was necessary. But how um, how do you think he managed that kind of transition to, to leader after Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I suppose the, the historic defeat of the 2019 election gave lots of young people, you know, people who were involved in the Corbyn project, this real sense of uh, hopelessness and deflated expectations and the sense that they wanted to retain, you know, the kind of utopian energy of that project, uh, but that also they had to face up to the reasons for its failure. And Starmer, I think, presented a lot of them with a very convenient narrative of that failure, he sort of in his leadership pitch to the rest of the party, he claimed that he would retain the bulk of Corbyn's program, you know, the nationalization of industry, uh, large public spending programs, but he would also be this kind of sensible guy in a suit, this respectable lawyer who would be able to sell a program like that to the public in a way that Jeremy Corbyn, for whatever reason, wasn't able to do. And so that was the basis of his pitch to the membership. But then once he had been elected, he quite quickly tacked away from that and towards a much more conventional kind of Blairite establishment politics. So mm. now, you know, the people who who had suffered that defeat are left with this dilemma of, you know, is membership of the party under Starmer this thing that they had sort of been missold in the leadership election? Do they do they retain it or do they seek political alternatives elsewhere? Yes, Oliver, this sounds very like um, politician in pre-election U-turn, that he's not the first or the last politician to do that. But we just move on to Brexit then, because in a similar vein, he's kind of been very pragmatic on this one also, uh, changing his stance quite radically. What's his position on Mm -hmm. Brexit now? You might just take us through the trajectory of where he started and where he's at now. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's been through various U-turns, yeah, of, of that very kind. I mean, Starmer was among the people in the party who immediately after the Brexit referendum saw no way of overturning that decision, no way of reversing it. I think there's a sort of historical amnesia around that, but actually a lot of the right of the Labour Party, the people who then went on to become the leaders of the second referendum campaign, they were initially under no illusions about the impossibility of of reversing that decision. So Starmer became the the Brexit secretary for the Labour Party under Corbyn with the mandate Mm. to implement Brexit um, should they come to power, but with the sense that he would do so in a very kind of cautious, uh, very technocratic way. He would maintain a lot of the trading relationships, he would maintain close proximity to Europe, uh, but he would fundamentally respect the decision. And I think, you know, I don't think that that was a, sort of a disingenuous position for Starmer to take. I think that was a, a registration of the political reality. But then later on, under the Corbyn leadership around 2018, when there is a, a real momentum towards second referendum campaign with the aim of remaining in the EU, uh, Starmer becomes uh, one of the, the flagship figures of that campaign. Um, and he works very carefully within the leadership, never straying too far from the party line, which is to respect the result, uh, but subtly doing doing various things from within to undermine it, mm. uh, often in, in tension with the leader's office, 
but kind of also uh, in an unsackable position, knows that he's very safe. And so in that way, he also managed to to gain a lot of popularity with the membership who were, on the one hand, very sympathetic to Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, very anti-Brexit. And Starmer managed to tread that fine line between those two positions in a way that set him up very well for uh, winning the subsequent leadership election. Yeah. And now, of course, now that he's won it, he's uh, you know saying very little about Brexit. He knows that's a, a no-go area as far as assembling Labour's constituency for 2024 is concerned. Yeah. He just gives you this vague sense again that he will essentially implement the Tory policy, but he'll do so more delicately, uh, more pragmatically. Yeah, I'm also very cognizant in 2016 that more than 30% of the Labour votes actually backed to leave. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk and I'm speaking to Oliver Eagleton, who's assistant editor of New Left Review and author of The Starmer Project. And we're talking about Sir Keir Starmer. Um, might just come up to today. I know we're we're kind of moving on very quickly into to what might happen next now, but just just in terms of where they're placed and where he's placed in in the polls, there's 20% ahead and, you know, expected to be the next prime minister, but I wonder sometimes, you know, his biggest asset was probably Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's economic disastrous policy. So do you think that he's actually done anything to kind of earn his place as the next prime minister? Is there anything innovative about him or is he just kind of going to walk into this by default? Well, I think under the Westminster two-party system, you don't have to do very much to become the the default option when an incumbent party, having spent so many years in power and become moribund, loses the confidence of the electorate. I think that's really what Starmer is betting on. Uh, and in these recent by-elections that Labour has uh, won from the Tories, it's not often the case that there are swathes of new Labour voters turning out. It's rather that uh, previous Tory voters just don't show up to the polling booth at all. Um, so I think that's the kind of dynamic that will propel Starmer to power next year, more apathy than enthusiasm about, about his project, the details of which are still um, quite vaguely delineated. I mean, he has made it very clear that uh, he's, you know, banished the memory of the Corbyn era, era. He's remade the Labour Party as an entirely different entity, um, whether or not that was the basis on which he was elected as leader. And he his his project in a way, and you know, it's interesting that he spent his career as a servant of the state, as a public prosecutor. He's now bringing a very similar skill set to the Labour Party, sort of prosecuting the left of the party, often expelling members, uh, sort of very strictly defining the boundaries of respectable or acceptable opinion within the party and reclaiming hegemony from its left. Mm. Um, but beyond that, his pitch to the public. Um, the wider public is is still quite thin. Uh, he's committed to no, you know, uh, sort of major public spending policies, no real tax reform. He had a, a green investment program that's now been delayed and will presumably be dropped once he's in office. Um, so the the pitch is really that he's not Jeremy Corbyn. 
and he's a uh, a respectable politician and he's free of some of the kind of croniest uh sort of corrupting influences that act upon the tory party he's his sense is that he's more competent than they are he's less beholden to their sort of patrons in you know the the shady world of sort of business and covid contracts and so on so he can act he he would say as a real kind of uh, public servant. Yeah, and he's um, he's a kind of an antidote, I suppose, to all the chaos of Boris Johnson. And um, as you say, in that two party system, there's not a lot of uh, work that he needs to do now. Perhaps there's not a lot of policy out there, as you say, and maybe he doesn't need to do that. But he's he's inheriting a, a very broken economy and a very broken country. So uh, it remains to be seen how he will manage that. But who are the people around him who matter? I've seen reports of late that maybe the likes of um, Peter Mandelson, even Tony Blair might be around him um, giving him advice uh, about the way forward and how to kind of rebuild that Labour momentum that they maybe had back in 1997. He certainly doesn't seem the type of character who's able to do that. But who are the people who are advising him? I mean, it's it's remarkable that every single appointment that he's made within his inner circle uh, is is a kind of hard right factional one. Figures from the Blair era, many of whom were living in the political wilderness uh, for the Corbyn years, who have now been brought back in. One of the masterminds of his whole kind of project and his leadership campaign was a guy called Morgan McSweeney, who developed this idea that you know the 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 standard kind of ideology of of the average labor member is not very well defined it's quite kind of pliable they could swing towards uh, the left if if that seems appealing or they could swing towards the right and uh morgan mcsweeney was one of the people instrumental in crafting this discourse that i think starmer uses to um you know to capture that kind of swing constituency um, and to yeah to kind of sort of bind them to his project, which is ultimately one of kind of restoration, you know. And it's questionable whether, as you say, Britain is now in these dire economic circumstances. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of its economy is in steady decline, especially after Brexit. If you look at the its trajectory compared to that of all the other EU countries, it's trending downwards in terms of real incomes, public services, and so on. And Starmer's solution is is really a process of kind of reconsolidation uh, of the Blairite project um, and to, insofar as it's possible, you know, banish the idea of an alternative to it that was created by the Corbyn experiment. Whereas, you know, so I think there's an interesting irony there that when Blair came in, his project was at least sort of new, innovative, modernizing. Uh, there was a real optimism about it. Whereas, you know, there's a paradox when you try to repeat uh, a new thing, it's then no longer new. Mm. Um, so I think Starmer is, you know, yeah, facing these difficult circumstances and his answer uh, is the answer that was given in 1997. But whether that's appropriate to this this very different conjuncture of circumstances is is unclear. Oliver, I just have one final question and uh, it's a brief one. Um, I'm afraid time is upon us, but um, I think the press in England and, and the UK in general is a very interesting landscape at the moment. Uh, very you know, a lot of right publications, a lot of far right publications, the advent of GB News and all of that. Do you think that um, 
Sir Keir Starmer and his team will be able to carve out a niche for themselves. Like they're certainly not going to be able to deliver uh, what Tony Blair and and Alistair Campbell did. But is it growing increasingly difficult for them to find a space in the UK press landscape? I think so. Um, And that's one of the fallacies, I think, of this kind of labour politics that assumes that if you move closer to the Tories, on a number of strategic areas, you can then neutralize opposition from the press. I think that may be true as far as the kind of establishment right-wing press is concerned. Obviously, Blair and now Starmer have won the confidence of the Financial Times, of the Telegraph. Uh, I think it's not inconceivable that, you know, somewhere like the Times would reckon that the the Tories um, are actually better out of office at this stage. And if we have a kind of sensible managerial politician in office, he can at least lay the groundwork for uh, the Tories returning in a few years' time once they've kind of got their house in order. So I think as far as the respectable broadsheets are concerned, Starmer might be able to to damp down any hostility. But now, as you say, you have this new media landscape uh, in which there are a whole number of kind of insurgent right-wing forces that are much closer to the kind of UKIP end of the spectrum. And they are really upset. You know, they they don't care about whether or not Starmer is going to uh, calm the nerves of the financial markets. They care about these very combustible culture war issues and they're going to exert influence on Starmer from that direction. So, you know, I I think for a politician like him that likes to play it safe in Mm. some regards, not wading into something like the transgender debate insofar as it's possible, I don't think that strategy is going to be effective at all when you have a a very radicalised right-wing media landscape. Certainly difficult, very difficult to navigate. Well, Oliver, I hope that um, as we get nearer the election time, you might join us again. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Oliver Eagleton, who's assistant editor of the New Left Review and author of The Starmer Project. Oliver, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, Simon Keane, and to researchers John Byrne and Stephen Daunt with Hugo de Silva on sound. And thanks, as always, to all of my guests today. But from now, that was Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.